Birds and Poets with Other Papers by John Burroughs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 8 Before Beauty Before genius is manliness and before beauty is power. The Russian novelist and poet Turgenev scattered all through whose works you will find unmistakable traits of greatness, makes one of his characters say, speaking of beauty, the old masters, they never hunted after it. It comes of itself into their compositions, God knows whence, from heaven or elsewhere. The whole world belonged to them, but we are unable to clasp its broad spaces. Our arms are too short. From the same depth of insight come these lines from leaves of grass, a propice of true poems. They do not seek beauty, they are sought. Forever touching them or close upon them follows beauty, longing, fame, lovesick. The Roman was perhaps the first to separate beauty from use and to pursue it as ornament merely. He built his grand edifice, its piers, its walls, its walls of brick and concrete, and then gave it a marble envelope copied from the Greek architecture. The latter could be stripped away as in many cases it was by the hand of time, and leave the essentials of the structure nearly complete. Not so with the Greek. He did not seek the beautiful. He was beauty. His building had no ornament. It was all structure. In its beauty was a flower of necessity, the charm of inborn fitness and proportion. In other words, his art was structure refined into beautiful forms, not beautiful forms superimposed upon structure as with the Roman. And it is in Greek mythology, is it not, that beauty is represented as riding upon the back of a lion, as she assuredly always does in their poetry and art, writes upon power or terror or savage fate, not only writes upon but is wedded and incorporated with it, hence the athletic desire and refreshment her coming imparts. This is the invariable order of nature. Beauty without a rank material basis enfeebles. The world is not thus made, man is not thus begotten and nourished. It comes to me there is something implied or understood when we look upon a beautiful object that has quite as much to do with the impression made upon the mind as anything in the object itself, perhaps more. 
There is somehow an immense and undefined background of vast and unconscionable energy as of earthquakes and ocean storms and cleft mountains across which things of beauty play and to which they constantly differ. And when this background is wanting as it is in much current poetry, beauty sickens and dies or at most has only a feeble existence. Nature does nothing merely for beauty. Beauty follows as the inevitable result, and the final impression of health and finish which her works make upon the mind is owing as much to those things which are not technically called beautiful as to those which are. The former give identity to the latter, the one is to the other what substance is to form or bone to flesh. The beauty of nature includes all that is called beautiful as its flower and all that is not called beautiful as its stalk and roots. Indeed, when I go to the woods or the fields or ascend to the hilltop, I do not seem to be gazing upon beauty at all but to be breathing it like the air. I am not dazzled or astonished. I am in no hurry to look lest it be gone. I would not have the litter and debris removed, or the banks trimmed, or the ground painted. What I enjoy is commensurate with the earth and sky itself. It clings to the rocks and trees, diskinded to the roughness and savagery. It rises from every tangle and chasm. It perches on the dry oak stubs with the hawks and buzzards. The crows shed it from their wings and weave it into their nests of coarse sticks. The fox barks it, the cattle low it, and every mountain path leads to its haunts. I am not a spectator of but a participator in it. It is not an adornment. Its roots strike to the center of the earth. All true beauty in nature or in art is like the iridescent hue of mother of pearl, which is intrinsic and necessary, being the result of the arrangement of the particles, the flowering of the mechanism of the shell or like the beauty of health which comes out of and reaches back again to the bones and the digestion. There is no grace like the grace of strength. What sheer muscular gripe and power lie back of the firm, delicate notes of the great violinist. Wit, says Hain, and the same thing is true of beauty. Isolated is worthless. It is only endurable when it rests on a solid basis. In fact, beauty as a separate and distinct thing does not exist. Neither can it be reached by any sorting or sifting or clarifying process. It is an experience of the mind and must be preceded by certain conditions just as light is an experience of the eye and sound of the ear.
To attempt to manufacture beauty is as vain as to attempt to manufacture truth. And to give it to us in poems or any form of art without a lion of some sort, a lion of truth or fitness or power, is to emasculate it and destroy its volition. But current poetry is, for the most part, an attempt to do this very thing, to give us beauty without beauty's antecedents and foil. The poets want to spare us the annoyance of the beast. Since beauty is the chief attraction, why not have this part alone, pure and unadulterated? Why not pluck the plumage from the bird, the flower from its stalk, the moss from the rock, the shell from the shore, the honey bag from the bee, and thus have it brief what pleases us? Hence, with rare exceptions, one feels on opening the latest book of poems, like exclaiming, Well, here is a beautiful at last divested of everything else, of truth, of power, of utility, and one may add of beauty too. It charms as color, of flowers, of jewels, of perfume charms, and that is the end of it. It is ever present to the true artist in his attempt to report nature that every object as it stands in the circuit of cause and effect has a history which involves its surroundings and that the depth of the interest which it awakens in us is in proportion as its integrity in this respect is preserved. In nature we are prepared for an opulence of color or of vegetation or freak or form or display of any kind because of the preponderance of the common ever-present feature of the earth. The foil is always at hand. In like manner in the master poems we are never surfeited with mere beauty. Woe to any artist who disengages beauty from the wide background of rudeness, darkness and strength and disengages her from absolute nature. The mild and beneficent aspects of nature, what gulfs and abysses of power underlie them. The great shaggy barbaric earth, yet the summing up, the plenum of all we know or can know of beauty. So the orbic poems of the world have a foundation as of the earth itself and are beautiful because they are something else first. Homer chose for his groundwork war, clinching, tearing, tugging war. In Dante, it is hell. In Milton, Satan and the fall. In Shakespeare, it is the fierce feudal world with its towering and kingly personalities. In Byron, it is revolt and diabolic passion. When we get to Tennyson, the lion is a good deal tamed, but he is still there in the shape of the proud, haughty and manly Norman and in many forms yet stimulates the mind. The perception of cosmical beauty comes by a vital original process. It is in some measure a creative act 
and those works that rest upon it make demands, perhaps extraordinary ones, upon the reader or the beholder. We regard mere surface glitter or mere verbal sweetness in a mood entirely passive and with a pleasure entirely profitless. The beauty of excellent stage scenery seems much more obvious and easy of apprehension than the beauty of trees and hills themselves, inasmuch as the act of association in the mind is much easier and cheaper than the act of original perception. Only the greatest works in any department afford any explanation of this wonder we call nature or aid the mind in arriving at correct notions concerning it. To copy here and there a line or a trait is no explanation, but to translate nature into another language, to bridge it to us, to repeat in some sort the act of creation itself, is the crowning triumph of poetic art. After the critic has enumerated all the stock qualities of the poet as taste, fancy, melody, it remains to be said that unless there is something in him that is living identity, something analogous to the growing, pushing, reproducing forces of nature, all the rest in the end pass for but little. This is perhaps what the German critic Lessing really means by action, for true poems are more like deeds expressive of something behind, more like acts of heroism or devotion, or like personal character, than like thoughts or intellections. All the master poets have in their work an interior chemical assimilative property, a sort of gastric juice which dissolves thought and form, and holds in vital fusion religions, times, races, and the theory of their own construction, naming up with electric and defiant power, power without any admixture of resisting form as in a living organism. There is in nature two types or forms, the cell and the crystal. One means the organic, the other the inorganic. One means growth, development, life. The other means reaction, solidification, rest. The hint and model of all creative works is the cell, critical, reflective, and philosophical works are nearer akin to the crystal, while there is much good literature that is neither the one nor the other distinctively, but which in a measure touches and includes both. But crystallic beauty or cut and polished gems of thought, the result of the reflex rather than the direct action of the mind, we do not expect to find in the best poems, though they may be most prized by specially intellectual persons. In the immortal poems, the solids are very few, or do not appear at all as solids, as lime and iron, any more than they do in organic nature, in the flesh of the peach or the apple. The main thing in every living organism is the vital fluids. Seven-tenths of man is water, and seven-tenths of Shakespeare is passion, emotion, fluid humanity.
Out of this arise his forms, as Venus arose out of the sea, and as man is daily built up out of the liquids of the body. We cannot taste, much less assimilate, a solid until it becomes a liquid. And your great idea, your sermon or moral, lies upon your poem a dead, cumbrous mass unless there is adequate heat and solvent, emotional power. Herein, I think Wordsworth's excursion fails as a poem. It has too much solid matter. It is an overfreighted bark that does not ride the waves buoyantly and lifelike, far less so than Tennyson's In Memoriam, which is just as truly a philosophical poem as the excursion. Wordsworth is the fresher poet. His poems seem really to have been written in the open air and to have been brought directly under the oxygenating influence of outdoor nature, while in Tennyson this influence seems tempered or farther removed. The physical cosmos itself is not a thought, but an act. Natural objects do not affect us like well-wrought specimens or finished handicraft, which have nothing to follow but as living, procreating energy. Nature is perpetual transition. Everything passes and presses on. There is no pause, no completion, no explanation. To produce and multiply endlessly without ever reaching the last possibility of excellence and without committing herself to any end is the law of nature. These considerations bring us very near the essential difference between prose and poetry, or rather between the poetic and the didactic treatment of a subject. The essence of creative art is always the same, namely interior movement and fusion, while the method of the didactic or prosaic treatment is fixity, limitation. The latter must formulate and define but the principle of the former is to flow, to suffuse, to mount, to escape. We can conceive of life only as something constantly becoming. It plays forever on the verge. It is never in loco, but always in transitu. Arrest the wind, and it is no longer the wind. Close your hands upon the light, and behold, it is gone. The antithesis of art and method is science, as Coleridge has intimated. As the latter aims at the particular, so the former aims at the universal. One would have truth of detail, the other truth of ensemble. The method of science may be symbolized by the straight line, that of art by the curve. The results of science, relatively to its aim, must be parts and pieces, while art must give the whole in every act, not quantitatively of course, but qualitatively, by the integrity of the spirit in which it works. The Greek mind will always be the type of the artist mind, mainly because of its practical bent, its healthful objectivity. The Greek never looked inward but outward. 
Criticism and speculation were foreign to him. His head shows a very marked predominance of the motive and perceptive powers over the reflective. The expression of the face is never what we call intellectual or thoughtful, but commanding. His gods are not philosophers, but delight in deeds, justice, rulership. Among the differences between the modern and the classical aesthetic mind is the greater precision and definiteness of the latter. The modern genius is Gothic and demands in art a certain vagueness and spirituality like that of music, refusing to be grasped and formulated. Hence for us, and this is undoubtedly an improvement, there must always be something about a poem or any work of art, besides the evident intellect or plot of it, of what is on its surface or what it tells. This something is the invisible, the undefined, almost unexpressed and is perhaps the best part of any work of art, as it is of a noble personality. To amuse, to exhibit culture, to formulate the aesthetic, or even to excite the emotions, is by no means all, is not even the deepest part. Besides these, and in closing all, is a general impalpable effect like good air or the subtle presence of good spirits, wordless but more potent far than words. As in the superbest person, it is not merely what he says or knows or shows, or even how he behaves, but the silent qualities, like gravitation, that insensibly but resistlessly hold us, so in a good poem or in any other expression of art. End of chapter 8 Before Beauty Birds and Poets with Other Papers by John Burroughs Read by Mahima Raj